0: We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. justice Hello, everybody. This is Shane Claiborne, and I'm so glad you could join me uh, this week as we talk about how our faith connects to the world that we live in right now. Uh, I want to begin this show, you know, as Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they are the children of God. Uh, We think of Jesus as the Prince of Peace, especially uh, during this season of Advent and Christmas and all the time, I guess. You know, Jesus seems to be this poignant interruption to violence and the embodiment of God's love, forgiving even those who were... Uh, pouring violence out on him and um, absorbing that violence to subvert it with love and forgiveness. But we Christians are not always great at following the Prince of Peace. Uh, There's a movement out there that you may have heard of uh, that began decades ago as the Christian Peacemaker Teams, and um, we're going to talk about that today today. And I'm going to talk about that with a friend who was a part of the original core group of Christian Peacemakers. Uh, And just to get us going, though. Um, These are the words of Ron Sider. It's a little bit of a quote from Ron Sider, the late Ron Sider, who passed away this past year and will be missed. He was a dear friend and brother um, and one who who cared deeply about life and was passionate about peacemaking. He gave this speech at the Mennonite World Conference in 1984. This is just one uh, little paragraph of it. Unless we are prepared to risk injury and death in nonviolent opposition to the injustice our societies foster, we don't dare even whisper another word about pacifism. To our sisters and brothers in desperate lands, unless we are ready to die developing new nonviolent attempts to reduce international conflict, we should confess that we never really meant that the cross was an alternative to the sword. Ron said, making peace is as costly as waging war. Unless we are prepared to pay the cost of peacemaking, we have no right to claim the label or preach the message. Those are the words of Ron Steider. We're going to talk about peace. Uh, My brother John uh, Ruer is here with me today. Did I say your name right, John? Yes. Yeah. And and now this is interesting, y'all. John is, we've talked a, a time or two. He was a part of the original C- Christian Peacemaker movement that started really kind of out of this dream that that uh, Ron and I think the spirit was already stirring stuff up. But um, uh, you continue to live out that uh, peacemaking spirit and you have all kinds of ideas for how we can live it out today. But first of all, uh, thanks for joining me, brother.
1: Glad to be here, Shane.
0: So tell us about that. You know, as this was getting going, and back in the 1900s, man, <laughs> back in the 1980s, um, what, what, what was the the vision and the passion that you were drawn to uh, in that original, you know, kind of infancy of the Christian Peacemaker Teams? Well, I was raised
1: in a pious Catholic family who taught me not to fight. <laughs> don't bet bullies, it's their problem, walk away from conflict. Uh, But if I draft number had been low enough, I would have gone to Vietnam and and served. My dad raised nine of us on his salary working at Edgewood Arsenal, Army's Chemical Warfare Center. So it wasn't until college when I did a retreat weekend on world hunger and over the course of a year or so came to understand that While there was plenty of food around people weren't feeding each other because they were so busy defending themselves from one another Mm. and then ronald reagan came into the president say we're going to win a nuclear war with the soviet union i said i wonder what that looks like studied it in great detail was horrified at what we were planning for ourselves and after some years and considerable success at that in reducing the number of nuclear weapons i turned to the problem of war in general and then discovered Mahatma Gandhi, and of course, Jesus, <laughs> trying to translate the gospel into real politic was a challenge. Mm. But it's, it's, it's been done now. It's been done by political scientists and, and spiritual leaders, and, and Christian peacemaker teams was a manifestation of that. How do you turn the idealism of Jesus and the Beatitudes into real life solutions?
0: And and these words that, uh, of you know, Dr. Ron Sider, I mean, they're pretty daring words, right? To say like, mm-hmm. do we believe in loving our enemies enough to be willing to die for that? Do we do we believe in the cross and the way of Jesus so much that we are as willing to give our lives for that as people have been willing to give their lives for war? I mean, it's a it's a it's a pretty, uh, <laughs> it's a pretty bold uh, assertion or invitation, I guess. There isn't it. It's, uh, you know, it, it sounds so
1: radical because of the way we were raised to believe that violence is the final arbiter of conflict, that, that peace just has no power. Peace is weakness almost. Uh, but it, it dawned on me, it's kind of funny for Christians to say that because <clears throat> my Catholic family would go into church and kneel before this crucified, tortured human being <laughs> mm. uh, and, and and not think that was unusual or radical or silly. And yet when I would say, you know, we can we can resist violence without violence, doing it the way Jesus did, they go, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. So that paradox always struck me. So I've I've spent a lot of decades now trying to figure out how to make nonviolent gospel realistic. Yeah. And CPT is a big part of that
0: and and i think that uh you know i think of dr king i mean he, who uh, not many people are going to call him a coward even though he was passionate about nonviolence right but he he died for the cause he went to jail was beaten over and over and over and so many others you know in the in the civil rights movement that believed in this nonviolence and believe that the way that we expose the violence is without mirroring it but 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 by actually you know um putting it on display so we can see how evil it is. I mean, it seems very much uh, what Jesus was doing on the cross, you know, putting the violent systems on display and the violence in our own hearts on display in order to show us what God's love looks like in the face of it. And in the words of Dr. King, he said, those who love peace must learn to organize as effectively as those who love war. It's a powerful line. We haven't always been as organized. Even those of us that have the conviction of nonviolence to to actually organize a movement that is courageous and bold. At uh, you know the motto of of CPT for so long has been to get in the way, to get in the way of, of violence. Um, and and you know that 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 was really what c p t set out to do was to organize this kind of army of nonviolence right and And I know you know things don't always unfold exactly how we have them in our mind, but say just a little bit more before we move into what you're doing now of uh, what your hopes were and and you know some of those that were realized and some of those that we might still be um aspiring towards uh, when it comes to this, this kind of global movement of nonviolence uh, and, and people that are getting in those areas where where violence is still happening?
1: Yeah, well, I, I got into it with theory first, right? I mean, you read, read the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, do good to those who, who persecute you, feed, feed your enemy, uh, making sense of those began with understanding Gandhi and his approaching king. I mean, these guys wrote beautiful things and, and led examples of real life changes in the world that were extremely radical and beneficial for mankind. And so we we know it works to some extent, but I was teaching it in theory. So I was very excited to be able to take a year and a half with Christian peacemaker teams in the 1990s and get into the field and see it work. Mm. So I was in Haiti with their first team there and in Hebron, Palestine, and eventually Colombia and other places. But what impressed me is how well this stuff works. When, when you have a soldier about to beat somebody or, or even shoot them, and you just interfere with your own humanity, just reminding that that person who's going to do the harm that the person they're attacking or you are human and they're human. And, and just giving a pause to that, that violence that's about to happen, whether it's not often the radical of actually standing between the gun and the person. Usually it's just going up and talking to somebody as they're getting agitated and escalating mm. Just being human to people in terrible situations is incredibly effective. We had a team of four in in Hebron. And all I could think was this stuff works so fantastically well that in two years we'll have 40 and in, in six years we'll have 400 and in 10 we'll have 40,000 and it will end conflict in the Middle East. And it's, it's been hard to see that not happen for reasons that I've thought about a lot, um, but it, the stuff works.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think it's always important to dream big. I mean, we, we know what what uh, God's dream is for the world and we want to pursue it. And it's, you know, this vision of turning swords into plows and spears into pruning hooks and studying violence no more. And the flourishing of every person seems to be what we're after. So. I, I love the, the strategic plan of you know uh, to just uh, going all everywhere um, and and there I mean, there still are our, our Christian peacemaker teams that are out there, CPT teams that are out in um, different conflict zones all over the world um, and that are always invited there by the people, right? So building relationships and I mean a lot of the the CPT folks are indigenous to those communities of conflict as well. Um, but, you know, you you talked about how it works, but you, we aren't necessarily trained in nonviolence. I, I like how Mandela, you know, he once said that um, we aren't born to hate. We we learn to hate. And I think the same is true of violence. We learn violence as our kind of knee jerk reaction to things. And so because violence is learned, it can be unlearned. But we've got to really train ourselves in that. And I know CPT has had a, a really rigorous training in nonviolence, the King Center, which I'm uh, so delighted to be a part of, too, has, has done a lot of trainings in the, the core principles of, of Dr. King's nonviolence. So say just a little bit more about how you were trained, but also how people who might want to uh, exercise those nonviolent muscles in our soul can you know, get some resources to do that today.
1: Yeah, let me begin by by saying, our, our training in violence, it, it takes a lot of training to get people to do atrocious things. Not everybody. There's there's people that are have uh, attachment disorders and so forth, and are traumatized that do violence easily. But the overwhelming majority of people really need to be trained hard. There's gr- there's great research on this now that why uh, soldiers find it so hard to kill in war, and the training it takes to overcome that and so forth, but. There was a study in the 1990s that showed if you're an American and watch the average amount of television, that you had seen 10,000 murders and watched mm-hmm. 250,000 acts of violence by the time you were were uh, 18. Mm-hmm. That's astounding numbers. And it really testifies to me is how incredibly nonviolent most people are despite that. They can really tell the difference between silly stuff and, and reality. A lot can't, but it still has an effect on us. You know, almost every movie I ever watched, every cop show, the good guys never won by being good. They won by out-violencing the bad guys. That's an enormous amount of training so that when then somebody says, pay for war, it's your only hope of saving yourself from the bad guys, you're going to buy right into it because you've never seen anything more realistic than that. Those of us who have been in the streets with impending violence and, and seen a different way other than brutality to respond to that, find it amazingly helpful. And it just makes me dream what we need to do is level the playing field between violence and nonviolence. So when you say training, yes, a whole month with Christian peacemaker teams was just just wonderful learning not only biblical principles and and the teachings of Jesus, but about uh, 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 nonviolent action and how it works with King and Gandhi. And we would practice from our training center to where we were living was through a, a mile walk in a neighborhood that most people say, you know, you probably shouldn't walk there. And, and just getting used to situational awareness and learning that, yeah, these people here, there's kids that live here. What do you mean I shouldn't walk there? Why, why is it okay for these kids to be here and not me? Mm-hmm. All that kind of stuff that make you realize that that applying your humanity to most situations is a wonderful thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Let me just pause to, to welcome anyone listening in. If you're just now tuning in, I'm Shane Claiborne, and uh, on on this during this half hour together, we talk about how our faith impacts the world around us, so that uh, that our our Christian faith is not just a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we in uh, we live in, but but is an active lifestyle. Um, inspired by Jesus uh, in the world that we live in. And my guest today has been John Ruer, who um, has a lifetime of experience, uh, in nonviolence and is still organizing and working for nonviolent solutions, uh, in, in a world that's still living by the sword and dying by the sword. So we've been talking about Christian peacemaker teams because John was part of one of the earliest, uh, core delegations of that and, and the formation of it in the 1980s and, and CPT still around today. And in fact, I went to Iraq, um, with a joint delegation of, of multiple groups, Veterans for Peace, uh, uh, Voices in the Wilderness was the name of that group back then with Kathy Kelly. And, um, and and CPT was one of the core groups. And John, I wanted us to, you know, you said nonviolence works. Sometimes the problem is, you know, there's that old quote that it's it's not that we've tried the way of Jesus and it's failed, but um, we've not really tried the way of Jesus <laughs> <laughs> we we found it a little inti- uh, intimidating, um, or uh, um, you know it's 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 a it's a courageous thing if we really say we're going to try to love our enemies. But you you said this you know powerful statement that it works, and I wonder if you can share a story. I've got one in my my head of CPT, but I want you to go first uh, of where you've seen this philosophy of nonviolence and this lifestyle of nonviolence, you know, actually work.
1: Well, I, I was with the Nonviolent Peace Force, which differs from CPT in that it's actually paid professionals. They, they do this for work, which is what has to happen. You can't expect people need to eat and live and support their families. You know, you can't do it as a volunteer all the time. So I was with them in South Sudan just as a civil war that had been raging on and off for better part of 60 years and had a heavily traumatized population. Um, but peace broke out while I was there, which was It's good for them and not as good for my experience, but (laughs) it was it was it was great. But we were in a village that had been totally overrun and burned to the ground by marauding uh, groups against the government, fighting government forces and so forth. Just endless, endless civil war. And we were having a meeting of people who wanted to go back to their village now that there was a peace accord, but were afraid to because the army was still there and not far away were still some rebel groups that had this very tense peace and you never knew when it was going to end. And so they came to the, the officials agreed to listen to the people come talk and, and they expressed these fears. And at one point, uh, one of the men who was, a civilian in the crowd who I l- later learned was actually one, a group of soldiers that had been uh, taking their uniforms off to participate in this, and he said, "How are we supposed to just go back to be normal when we never know when we're going to be, uh, you know, attacked again? And you know, how can how can this nonviolence possibly work?" And I said, "Well, part of it is holding your own leaders, whether a rebel group or a government, accountable." for mm. keeping the peace, that's their job. And one of my South Sudanese NP partners ribbed me, said, it's too political, it's too political, you know, because the, the leaders who had participated in this horrible war were right up front. So I got a little bit nervous. Mm. Uh, but then uh, one of the one of the former commanders, he said, said, I thank our friend from the United States for saying this. He mm. said, because it is our job. And if you want these soldiers not to be continuing in war, not to be called up by the whatever word he used for knuckleheads and politicians in Juba, the capital, who started all this mess, he said, you've got to give them trauma healing and jobs. Mm -hmm. This was the commander who had seen these bloody, horrible battles. Mm -hmm. Um, See, I think inside of everybody, and especially most soldiers, they know that there's a better way, Mm -hmm. but there's nobody helping them do that all the money goes into the opposite
0: mm-hmm. and uh, wow yeah and you know when i when i um was in uh iraq uh during two th- in 2003 um we saw a lot of the the similar things, you know, we saw the violence, but we also saw people who wanted anything but violence and young people that wanted different um, opportunities. I remember one of the doctors in the hospital, you know, that was holding this child that was just riddled with missile fragments from, from our country, right. Dropping bombs on Iraq. Um, And he said, this violence is for people who have lost their imagination and and he, he said, we need imagination. Like war is a is is, is a lack of imagination, always, you know. And um and, and one of the things that Christian Peacemaker teams has been about that and and, and nonviolence workers everywhere have been trying to find these. You know ways that we can we can live within a different imagination. I think Jesus does that in the Sermon on the Mount with the you know when someone sues you for the coat off your back, give them your underwear as well. Kind of that's my paraphrase. You know, but you know, this idea that we're gonna we're gonna not um, live into the the narrative of violence. And one of my my favorite stories uh, from CPT folks, um, I remember camping out. We we had this encampment. Outside of the hospital in Iraq. And so we told a lot of stories. And uh, I can't remember who told this one, but it was a CPT story from Hebron, where you were and where I've been several times. You know, this region that is so, um, uh, carries so much of the weight of the conflict there. And um, there's the Ibrahimic Mosque that, you know, serves both as a mosque and a synagogue. Abraham and Sarah are buried there. Um, And all around it are these. Uh, settlements, and so one day the soldiers were there, and they were tor- they, they were really um, aggressive or uh, uh, towards the kids that were going to school, and uh, the the CPT folks were doing what they usually did; they were trying to be a prayerful, peaceful presence in the, in the middle, you know, so that everybody could go to school safely. And these soldiers kept pushing in on them. And this is the story, as I heard it, John, <laughs> it's a beautiful story. Uh, as the soldiers got more and more aggressive, one of the CPT delegates, um, uh, his phone rang. And so he picked up the phone and he said to one of the soldiers, just impulsively, he said, it's your mom. And uh, <laughs> and the guy's like, no, it's not my mom. And that's not funny, you know, whatever. And they kind of kept going, but it like totally threw off the whole situation. And um, and he said, yeah, it is. It's your mom. And it uh, kept going with it. And so the soldiers kind of kept moving. And it sort of like, uh, you know, um, dissolved the situation temporarily. But later, this CPT delegate saw that soldier again. I mean, these are not huge towns, you know. So he saw him again and he said, listen, why did you do that? And he's like, I don't know. It just, you know, I it just just, you know, I had to do something. He said, when you did that, when you said it was my mom, my mom. Is a school teacher. And I started thinking to myself, what if this was my mom's school and this was happening to her? And wow. he said, I also started to think, would my mom be proud of me for what I'm doing right now? And it just got all this stuff going in me. And you're like, it's incredible. And then to this day, that you know, he doesn't know why he did it, but it feels like there's something in that, right? That we we got to be a part of the interruption of this kind of spiraling violence and you know we just got a few minutes left so i want to i want to quickly move to where we're at right now because i know you've got some ideas um i mean a lot of these stories we think about they're happening in Hebron, they're you know your experience in conflict zones in other parts of the world but i mean we're living in real time with a conflict happening in ukraine um and and you you've got some great ideas i just read your paper on on this so throw it out there uh, you know what what do we do in Ukraine, When it feels like uh, uh, <clears throat> many people, violence is the only solution.
1: Right. So y- Ukraine, I had a lot of hope for when this war started because they had had uh, dom- total domination by Russia until 1991. And they they gained freedom without destroying their country, without slaughtering hundreds of thousands of people. So they had a history of doing that. And and uh, we always we all saw that. In, in fact, relative to your story, there was a viral viral video of a, a soldier. And I don't know if he had deserted or been captured, but instead of beating him and putting him in prison, they handed him a cup of coffee, and gave him a cell phone to talk to his mom. Just imagine if we'd sent hundreds of millions of dollars to train people to do that kind of thing and win over Russian hearts and Ukrainian hearts rather than hundreds of billions, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of weapons to kill. What that would mean—that's the kind of uh, leveling the playing field that that needs to be done. Whatever lives you're going to spend in war, whatever money you're going to spend, try it with something else. Just mm. take killing off the table and do it. That—that's what needs to happen. So, <clears throat> anyway, uh, Ukraine could have done, gone that way, but we we chose a different way. But one project that is going now—it has to do with the nuclear power plant in at Zaporizhia, the largest in in uh, in Europe. Um, six reactors. If that plant gets disturbed, uh, it will create Chernobyls, where enormous enormous amounts of radiation make large areas of Europe uninhabitable. And the International Atomic Energy Agency said we've got to do something about this. They did unarmed protective, like CPT kind of work, just as UN inspectors. They went in, negotiated to let the Russians in the plant to assure its safety. They were doing. They probably never thought about Jesus, or maybe they did, but maybe they didn't, or Non violence or anything. They just did what was human and it's and it's huge. So those of us from the CPT community and other unarmed protection agencies want to now go in and, and support them. And so anybody that wishes to volunteer well, or support us in doing that, to go in unarmed, doing basically nonviolent protection work for the dangers of this nuclear power plant, uh, please contact us and you could do that at worldbeyondwar.org slash zap Z A P slash.
0: Okay, we'll we'll put it in the show notes, too, because that's a lot to follow. But um, and, you know, we we should have you do another piece for Red Letter Christians, too, so we can put all that up there, John. But, um, wow, this uh, this half hour flew by and anything else you want to say in closing? We just got a few seconds left, but I want to how people can follow you or keep track of the work.
1: Yeah, just, uh, you know, the cross is our biggest fear, right? That somebody's going to put us on a cross if we're passive or or nonviolent. And that could happen. But that's what happened to Jesus. Mm. And so, so my, my theory is, if enough of us do it, then nobody will have to go to a cross. Mm. The brave mm. Russian soldiers that had to leave their country not to fight in Ukraine, if enough of them to do it, they wouldn't have to leave their country.
0: So let's all get on board with Jesus. So let's just hold on with that. Get on board with Jesus, y'all. And whether you go to Ukraine or you are discerning what else you can do, let's all do something because we are followers of the Prince of Peace. And this is not this is not cheap grace, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. It's costly. And so let's be willing to pay the price for our beliefs of nonviolence and love that will triumph over hatred. So thanks for listening in, and we'll see you next week.